Chapter Seventeen of Stories of Old Greece and Rome by Emily Kip Baker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seventeen Pluto and the Underworld. In the beginning of the world, before the gods came to dwell in Olympus, all the universe was in the hands of the Titans, and among these the greatest was Saturn, or Kronos, who wedded his sister Rhea, also called Cybele, and became the father of three sons and three daughters, Jupiter, Pluto, Neptune, Ceres, Vesta, and Juno. For many ages Saturn and Rhea, having subdued all the opposing Titans, ruled over the heaven and earth, but when the cruelty of Saturn drove his children into rebellion, there arose a mighty war in the universe, in which the sons and daughters of Saturn leagued against their father, who had called upon the other Titans for aid. After years of combat, the six brothers and sisters, helped by the Cyclops, defeated the allied Titans and imprisoned them in the black abyss of Tartarus, all except a few who had not joined in the war against the children of Saturn. Among those who were wise enough to accept the new sovereignty were Nemosyne, memory, and Themis, goddess of justice. Those descendants of the Titans who refused to acknowledge the supremacy of Jupiter were consigned to the centre of Mount Etna, and were the giants who constantly turned over and over, making Pluto fear for the safety of his realm. A few of the giants were spared, Atlas, whose punishment was to hold the heavens on his shoulders, and Prometheus and Epimetheus, who had espoused the cause of Jupiter, and so escaped the fate of the conquered Titans. When the children of Saturn found themselves masters of the world, they agreed to accept Jupiter as their ruler, on condition that the two other brothers be given a share in the universe. So a division was made, whereby Pluto became king of the underworld, or Hades, Neptune took the dominion of the sea, and Jupiter, having married his sister, Juno, established his dwelling in Olympus as lord of heaven and earth. The kingdom of Pluto was dreaded by all mortals, and its ruler inspired men with great fear. Though Pluto was known to visit the earth from time to time, no one wished to see his face, and each man dreaded the moment when he should be obliged to appear before the grim monarch of Hades, and be assigned a place among the innumerable dead. No temples were dedicated to Pluto, although altars were sometimes erected, on which men burned sacrifices to this inexorable god, while petitioning him to be merciful to the souls of the departed. The festivals held in his honour were celebrated only once in a hundred years, and on these occasions none but black animals were killed for the sacrifice. The underworld over which Pluto reigned was deep in the heart of the earth, but there were several entrances to it, one being near Lake Avernus, where the mist rising from the waters was so foul that no bird could fly over it. The lake itself was in an extinct volcano near Vesuvius. It was very deep, and was surrounded by high banks covered with a thick forest. The first descent into Hades could be easily accomplished. Facilis descensus Averno, says the poet Virgil. But no mortal was daring enough to venture far into the black depths, lest he should never again see the light of day. At the portal of Hades sits the fierce three-headed dog, Kerberos, who keeps all living things from entering the gate, and allows no spirit that has once been admitted to pass out again. From here a long dark pathway leads deeper into Hades, and is finally lost in the rivers that flow around Pluto's throne. The waters of the river Cocytus are salt, 
as they are made of the tears that stream for ever from the eyes of those unhappy souls who are condemned to labour in Tartarus, that part of Hades that is the exclusive abode of the wicked. The Plegathon River, which is always on fire, separates Tartarus from the rest of Hades, and wretched indeed is the soul that is forced to cross its seething waters. On the banks of the Acheron, a black and turbid river, stand the souls who come fresh from the sunlit earth, for all must pass this river and be brought before the judgment throne of Pluto. There is no bridge over the murky stream, and the current is so swift that the boldest swimmer would not trust himself to its treacherous waters. The only way to cross is by the leaky, worm-eaten boat, rowed by Charon, an aged ferryman, who has plied his oar ever since the day that the curse of death first came upon the earth. No spirit is allowed to enter the leaky craft until he has first paid Charon the fee of a small coin called the obolus. During the funeral service before the body is committed for burial, this coin is laid on the tongue of the dead, that the soul may have no trouble in passing to the throne of Pluto. If any spirits cannot furnish the necessary money, they are ruthlessly pushed aside by the mercenary boatmen, and are required to wait a hundred years. At the end of this time, Charon grudgingly ferries them over the river free of charge. As the unstable boat can hold but few, there is always an eager group of spirits on the further bank, clamouring to be taken across the river, but Charon is never in a hurry, and repulses, sometimes with his oar, the pitiful crowd that waits his grim pleasure. There is also in Hades the river Styx, by whose sacred waters the gods swear the most terrible of all oaths, and on the other side of Pluto's throne is the softly flowing Lethe, of which only those souls can drink who are to spend endless days of happiness in the Elysian fields. As soon as those blessed spirits have tasted the waters of Lethe, all regrets for friends that mourn completely vanish, and the joy and grief and pleasure and pain of the soul's life on earth are forgotten. In the Elysian fields there is no darkness, such as fills the rest of Hades with its thick gloom, but a soft light spreads over the meadows, where the spirits of the thrice-blessed wander. There are willows here, and stately silver poplars, and the meads of asphodel breathe out a faint perfume from their pale flowers. There do men lead easiest lives, no snow, no bitter cold, no beating rains are there. From Bryant's Odyssey Book 4, line 722. The sighs and groans that rise by night and day from the black abyss of Tartarus do not reach the ears of those who dwell at peace in the Elysian fields, and the sight of its painful torments is hid forever from their eyes. Beside Pluto's throne sit the three fates, also called Parquet, those deathless sisters who hold the threads of life and death in their hands. Clotho, the youngest, spins the thread. Lachesis, the second, twines it into the joys and sorrows, hopes and fears that make up human experience, and Atropos, the eldest sister, sits by with huge shears in her hand, waiting for the time when she may cut the slender thread. Pluto and his queen Proserpina are seated side by side on a sable throne, ruling over the myriad souls that compose the vast kingdom of the dead. Perched on the back of the throne is the blinking owl, who loves this eternal darkness, and the black-winged raven, that was once a bird of snowy plumage, and the favourite messenger of Apollo. The raven fell from his high estate, on account of some unwelcome tidings that he once brought to Apollo, when that god was an ardent lover of the fair-haired Coronis. 
believing that no one could supplant him in the maiden's affections apollo was happy in the thought of being beloved by so beautiful a mortal but one day his snow-white raven flew in haste to olympus to tell him that the maiden was listening to the wooing of another lover enraged at this duplicity apollo seized his bow and shot the faithless coronis but the moment that he saw her lying dead he repented of his rash deed and vainly sought to restore her to life though skilled in the art of healing apollo could not save the maiden and in his frenzied grief he cursed the unfortunate raven that had brought the evil tidings and banished it for ever from his sight then he turned upon the raven wanton babbler see thy fate messenger of mine no longer go to hades with thy prate weary pluto with thy tattle hither monster come not back and to match thy disposition henceforth be thy plumage black by sax near pluto's throne are seated the three judges of hades minos radamanthus and acus who question all souls that are brought across the river when they have learned every detail of the newcomer's past life they deliver the cowering spirit into the hands of themis the blindfolded goddess of justice who weighs impartially the good and bad deeds in her unerring scales if the good outweighs the evil the soul is led gently to the elysian fields but if the bad overbalances the good then the wretched spirit is driven to tartarus there to suffer for all his wrongdoings in the fires that burn for ever and ever behind the brazen gates to these gates the guilty one is urged by the three furies whose snaky hair shakes hideously as they ply their lashes to goad the shrinking soul to its place of torment sometimes they are joined by nemesis goddess of revenge who hurries the doomed spirit over the fiery water of the phlegathon with her merciless whip and sees that it follows no path but the one leading to the brazen gates of tartarus as soon as the gates close on the newly admitted soul there is a renewed clamour of voices while heart-breaking sighs and groans mingle with the curses of those who in their misery dare to defy the gods and beneath all the awful sounds that greet the listener's ears there is an undertone of pitiful wailing like the sea's melancholy long withdrawing roar that seems to come from millions of throats too feeble to utter a loud cry the deepest sighs proceed from the danaides the beautiful daughters of danaos king of argos who must forever strive to fill a bottomless cask with water they form a sad procession as with their urns on their arms they go down to the stream to begin their hopeless task and then climb wearily up the steep bank to pour the water into the ever empty cask if they pause a moment exhausted with fatigue the whips of some avenging attendants of pluto lash them again into action their punishment is severe but the crime for which they are suffering was a dreadful one the fifty daughters of danaus were once pledged in marriage to the fifty sons of egyptus brother of danaus but when the wedding was being celebrated their father remembered the words of an ancient prophecy that said he would die by the hand of his son-in-law fearing for his life he confided to his daughters what the oracle had foretold and gave them each a dagger bidding them slay their husbands on the evening of the wedding when the sons of egyptus were heavy with wine the new-made wives stole in upon them and killed them as they slept danaos then believed himself safe until he learned that one of his daughters had spared her husband out of love for him this son-in-law was eager to avenge his brother's murder and having sought out the wicked danaos fulfilled the prophecy by killing the king with the very dagger intended for his own death 
the gods punished the cruel daughters, except Hypermnestra, who had saved her husband, by condemning them to labour in Tartarus at their impossible task. Near the Danaides stands Tantalus, the father of Niobe, who on earth was a most inhuman and brutal king. He ill-treated his subjects, defied the gods, and dared to make his own will the religion of his kingdom. He boasted that the gods were not so omniscient as people were led to believe, and insulted the immortals by offering them at a banquet the flesh of his own son Pelops, believing that they would never learn the truth of this loathsome feast. But the gods were not deceived, and left the meat untouched, all except poor Ceres, who, still mourning over her daughter's detention in Hades, did not realise what was happening, and bit off some of the lad's shoulder. When the gods restored Pelops to life, Ceres was very sorry for her carelessness, and gave him a shoulder of ivory. The inhuman Tantalus was condemned to the torments of Tartarus, where he stands up to his chin in a clear stream. Though frenzied with thirst, he can never drink of the water, for whenever he bends his head, the stream recedes from his parched lips. Above him hangs a branch of delicious fruit, but when, tormented with hunger, he strives to grasp it, the branch eludes his eager fingers. Thus he stays always tantalised by the sight of food and drink he never can secure. Not far from Tantalus is Salmoneus, also a king, who dared to challenge the gods by impersonating Jupiter. He made a huge bridge of brass, and drove heavily over it, while he threw lighted torches among the people who were waiting below, hoping thus to frighten them into believing that he was the very ruler of the heavens who hurls the mighty thunderbolts. This insult to his divinity so angered Jupiter, that he seized a real thunderbolt, and soon dispatched the arrogant king. When Salmoneus came before the throne of Pluto, his fate was quickly decided, and he was driven to terrible Tartarus, where he sits under a huge rock, that threatens every moment to fall and crush him beneath its weight. Another unhappy king is Sisyphus, who, when ruler of Corinth, became a famous robber, and in the pride of his great wealth dared to set the gods at naught. Therefore he was consigned to Tartarus, and his punishment is to roll an immense stone to the top of a steep hill. As soon as he reaches the summit, the rock slips from his aching arms, and tumbles to the foot of the hill, and he must at once start on the hopeless task of pushing it up the long ascent again. With many a weary step and many a groan, up the high hill he heaves a huge round stone. Homer, Pope's Translation Beyond Sisyphus lies Titius, a giant whose huge body covers nine acres of ground. He was condemned to the blackness of Tartarus because he dared to affront a goddess with his addresses, and so was doomed to suffer, like Prometheus, by being chained to a rock, while a vulture tears at his liver. Near him is Ixion, who was promised the hand of a certain maiden in marriage, on condition that he would give her father a large sum of money. Ixion agreed, but when the maiden became his wife he refused to give the stipulated sum, in spite of her father's clamorous demands. At length, wearied by the old man's insistence, Ixion slew him, but the deed did not go unpunished, for the gods summoned him to appear before them, and answer for his cruelty. Ixion pleaded his cause so well that Jupiter was about to dismiss him, when he saw the presumptuous mortal making love to Juno. This offence could not be overlooked, so Ixion was sent to Tartarus, where he was bound to an ever-revolving wheel of fire. If any one could follow the course of the gentle Lethe River, it would lead beyond the sunless realm of Pluto to a quiet and far-distant valley, where, in a soundless cave, lives Somnus, 
the god of sleep, and his twin brother Mors, god of death. Here the sun, whether rising or in his mid-course or setting, can never come, and frogs, mingled with the dimness, form a strange twilight. No wakeful bird calls forth the morn, nor do watchful dogs disturb the brooding silence. No sound of wild beast or cattle, nor any noise of creaking bough, nor human voice breaks in upon the perfect stillness, where mute rest has her abode. Before the cave bloom abundant poppies and other sleep-producing herbs, which night gathers, that she may distil their juice and scatter slumbers on the darkened earth. Within the cave is no door that could creak on rusty hinges, and no porter stands at the entrance of that inner room, where, on a downy couch, made of black ebony, and draped with sable curtains, over which black plumes wave, lies Somnus, the god of sleep. Sleep, the repose of all things, gentlest of the deities, from whom all care flies, the peace of mind can soothe the hearts of men, wearied with the toils of the day, and can refit them for labour. From Ovid, Metamorphoses, Book 11, Line 590 Near Somnus sits Morpheus, one of his many sons, who watches over his slumbers and sees that no one shall break in upon his sleep. This god holds a vase in one hand, and with the other he shakes of the nodding poppies that bring drowsiness and sleep. Sometimes he assumes varied forms in which he appears to men at night, and always he flies through the darkness with wings that make no noise. Around the couch of Somnus hover shadowy forms, the dreams, which are as numerous as the forest leaves or the sands upon the seashore. In a distant corner of the room lurk the horrid nightmares, which creep out of the cave to visit sleeping mortals, but are never led to earth by Mercury, as are the welcomed dreams. Two gates lead out of the valley of sleep, one of horn and one of ivory. Of dreams, O stranger, some are meaningless and idle, and can never be fulfilled. Two portals are there for their shadowy shapes, of ivory one and one of horn. The dreams that come through the carved ivory deceive, with promises that never are made good. But those which pass the doors of polished horn, and are beheld of men, are ever true. Bryant's Homer's Odyssey Book 19, line 679 Sunt Gemini Somni Portae, quar altera furtor, cornea qua veris faculis dator exitus umbris, altera caudenti perfecta nitens elephanto, sed falsa ad caelum mittunt insomnia manes. Virgil, Anaid, Book 6, line 893 Moors, god of death, occupies one of the rooms in the cave of sleep. He is a fearful-looking deity, cadaverous as a skeleton, and wrapped in a winding-sheet. He holds an hourglass in one hand and a sharp scythe in the other, and stands watching the sand run out of his glass, that he may know when a human life is nearing its end. Then, as the last grains fall, he glides from the valley of sleep, and stalks silently and unseen upon the earth, where he cuts down the unhappy mortal who cannot even hear the rustle of his garments as he approaches. It is nothing to him whether the life he takes belongs to childhood or youth, for he mows them down as relentlessly as he does tottering old age. And to the rich he is as unsparing as to the poor. Pallida mor saequo pulsat pede pauperum tabernas regum quetores. Horace, Cominum, Book One, 
Paragraph 4, line 13. The divinities who dwelt in the cave of sleep were distrusted by the ancients, and Moors was held in universal dread. No homage was ever offered to him, and no temples were dedicated in his honour, though sacrifices were sometimes made to ward off his dreadful coming. He was never represented in art, except in a pleasing aspect, for although they believed him to have in reality the fearful appearance that tradition ascribed to him, yet the beauty-loving Greeks refused to have this kind of horror embodied in marble. So when death appears in sculpture, it is usually with his brother Sleep, and both are represented as sleeping youths, whose heads are crowned with poppies or amaranths, and who hold inverted torches in their listless hands. End of chapter 17